This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. One person loving or hating a product is so non-indicative of whether a brand will succeed or whether a movement or category will succeed. And it is actually the fragmentation of taste preferences and consumer preferences in general that allow this industry to flourish. It's what allows indie brands to go solve problems that big large, established, well-resourced CPG conglomerates can't solve. So that fragmentation, I think, is the magic of this industry. It's something that I think we should just be celebrating more, the differences between us and how these brands can solve our problems and how when we solve our problems, we can share those solutions with friends. That, to me, is the most special part of the industry that we work in. Hello, I'm your host, Mike Gelb, and this is the Consumer VC Podcast, where we discuss the intersection of venture capital and consumer innovation. If you're enjoying this podcast, I highly recommend subscribing to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com, where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. All content and episodes are for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not investment advice. This episode is brought to you by Vobin from Carta. Vobin from Carta is the easiest way to launch and run your venture investing. They offer SPVs and fund vehicles for GPs at all stages of the journey, from your first syndicate to operating a multi-million dollar venture fund. If you're interested in investing in startups, stick around after the episode where I chat with Gabriel Shin from the Vobin from Carta team, who shares his perspective and tips about how to start investing and how Vobin from Carta can get you set up. The link to Vobin from Carta's website is in the show notes. So we're here. I can't believe we're here. We're at episode 300. And I couldn't be more excited to have these two amazing investors on the show who just came off of raising their second $34 million fund. We have Kiva Dickinson, our first non-name Mike, second time guest, and Madeline Kaplan from Selva Ventures. Selva Ventures is an early stage venture capital firm dedicated to partnering with consumer brands that promote healthier living. We discussed their recent close of their $34 million fund two, how it's different from fund one, the differences between clean and clinically backed beauty and personal care brands. Do they value $1 of online revenue more than $1 earned in retail? And much, much, much more. This is a really, really great conversation about consumer brands and as well as health and wellness. Without further ado, here's Kiva and Madeline. Kiva and Madeline, Team Selva. Thank you both so much for coming on the podcast. How are you both? We're doing great. Excited to be here. Excited to be back. (laughs) Doing well. Thanks for having us, Mike. No, thank you so much for coming on. Kiva, you are the first second time podcast guest who is not named Mike. So congratulations. That's, that's an honor. And and I very much look forward, <laughs> I look very much look up to the first one. So uh big shoes to fill. Kiva, you you came back, you were first on the pod back in 2020. A lot of things have changed, obviously, in in the state of consumer. I know the state of Selva has also changed. Now you're uh you've you've you have you have gone from a team of one to a team of two. What have been some of your learnings over the past couple of years since we started speaking back in 2020? Yeah, I mean, probably at the highest level, building a firm is hard. Uh, I think we spoke probably like February of 2020. It was so close to the world shutting down that I remember we had to get back on the phone to record a little a little addendum. Went, went into working from my kitchen table and, and then a, a small home office for a long time without without a teammate for quite some time until Madeline joined the fold. And so I, I think uh, probably just um, gratitude that I was naive enough to take a shot at this on my own at the beginning and very much aware of like how many battle scars came along the way to, to build something that more investors would want to be a part of and more companies would want to be a part of. And more importantly, that, that Madeline would want to join because ever since the team has expanded, um, 
it's been a game changer. I feel like we've grown up and, and um, really expanded our, our vision and, and ambition quite a bit while keeping the mission the same. So what, what led to Madeline joining the team? When, how did you first, both of you first meet um, and Madeline, I guess, what got you excited to join Selva? Yeah. So Kiva and I met in the summer of 2021. At the time I was working at a later stage consumer investment firm, uh, kind of doing series B all the way to pre IPO and was looking to go earlier stage with my investing as well as focus on kind of more of a niche part of the market. And I'd always been super passionate about health and wellness in my own personal life. I was a student athlete all the way through college. I grew up in LA where me and my friends were always trying the latest health and wellness trends. And so it was an area that I was already pretty personally passionate about. And so every person that I spoke on the phone with, I was telling them about what I was interested in. And one of our mutual friends, Chloe Steinberg, uh, suggested that I connect with Kiva and learn more about what he was doing at Selva, just in the context of, of learning more about what it would be like to actually do that day to day. And so we hopped on the phone um, and had a, had a nice call and then really spent like the next eight or nine months getting to know each other, getting to kind of figure out how we operate. We looked at a deal together. Um, and felt super aligned both in terms of our core values and the kind of firm that we wanted to build, as well as the strategy that Selva's pursuing. So I feel very fortunate to to have joined the team and to be where we are today. Um, can, we, can we talk a little bit about the strategy that Selva is pursuing? And, and kind of, and, and Kiva, how has that evolved from maybe where we were back in 2019, 2020, when you were first starting this firm? The strategy originally stemmed from a problem that I saw in the market, a hole in the market of value add high resource capital supporting early stage wellness brands at seed and series A. It felt like there were a ton of really amazing supportive firms in later stages. And there were some amazing early stage firms that provided not just capital, but great resources across technology and, and healthcare but really not a lot in consumer products. And so uh, we came to market with a $10 million fund, really trying to more than anything prove that this type of investing would work, that uh, not only could there be a really interesting return profile at the earliest stage of consumer products, um, but also that what we brought to bear would resonate with the best brands and that they would want to work with us. I think what we found is... Uh, a number of proof points that this does work, a number of proof points that this really is an exceptional opportunity in terms of risk reward and opportunity for partnership with, with these types of brands. Um, these types of brands, I, th I think, uh, liked working with us and often were asking for us to be more involved. You know, we led three of the 14 investments we made in fund one. Uh, and um, I think, you know, there, there are at least twice as many that we probably could have led if we had the greater capital to do so. And so I think as we started thinking about this second fund, uh, we started thinking like, essentially, how do we avoid changing our strategy as much as possible? Because the strategy is very much working. And it certainly seemed like the appetite from these companies that we like to focus on uh, for us to say, write a one and a half million dollar check instead of a $500,000 check was really there. And so that gave us the confidence really to, to run the same strategy back to maybe talk about some other categories, which we can spend more time on in this, in this, uh, this session, but um, to really not change the, the type of company we're looking for, which is again, just that seed in series A really high potential, ambitious brand that's helping their consumers live healthier lives. In terms of the evolution, I, I guess partly it's writing bigger checks, being able to lead more rounds and become more and more involved in companies. Maybe we can talk a little bit as well as how you think about being involved and actually helping companies from uh, from that standpoint too. But would love to first maybe dive into what are maybe some of like the new categories that um, uh, that you're maybe interested in that previously maybe in fund one that you weren't exploring. Yeah, I think I think the first one to start with is is something that was a more minor focus in fund one that is becoming a really major focus in fund two, which is beauty and personal care. 
you know, we had invested in Kinship and Cake prior to Madeline joining. Uh, it wasn't until Madeline joined that we're, we were able to um, to really dive headfirst into that space and try to become a leader. Uh, it was a category that I always knew was was really interesting, but it would have required much greater expertise than I had in order to play a force. And so uh, it was Madeline's passion, which she should talk about, that that really allowed us to to you know make that a big strategic focus. I would just add to that that beauty and personal care are categories that I personally love and spend a lot of time uh, learning about and exploring in my own life. And then I think from the business perspective can be very high margin, profitable businesses. And uh, when you're truly solving a problem for the consumer, having that repeat purchase and people kind of coming back for more and really a sticky customer uh, makes it a great business model when it works. Um, So I think the combination of both being super interested in the category and then having, you know, a pretty compelling business model as well as some strategic buyers who rely on these kind of early high growth companies um, to acquire them to continue to bolster their growth. It was just like a great, uh, great category for us to get more exposure in. And so far in the second fund, two out of three of our investments are in the beauty and personal care space. So I can understand why beauty and personal care broadly speaking, as a category is pretty interesting for a VC, right? You have, you know, high margin profile. Um, if if a consumer loves your product, then you then you hopefully have high retention, um, which those are two, you know, great things to have um, in a business that you can scale with. Um, but wh- how do you dissect within beauty and personal care of what kind of makes a company more interesting or different kind of sub trends or um, that, that, that you find quite, quite interesting in today's market? Yeah. So I think it goes back to what we focus pretty broadly on in at Selva is brands that are making products that are, uh, you know, making consumers lives better in some way. And we think about that in three ways. Products that offer better function, better better ingredients, and a better emotional connection with the consumer. And I think that last piece is is pretty critical in the beauty category. Um, I would say, like, in terms of what's interesting in the space, there has to be some sort of, you know, need for this product, some sort of innovation or reason reason that the product exists and that the consumers are coming back for more and more. And then I would say on the brand side of things that emotional resonance is really, really important. And having something that's either speaking to the consumer, making them feel seen in a way that they haven't before, um, you know, more so reflecting the modern world that we live in. There's such a need for those new brands that are able to kind of attract and reach consumers that have oftentimes not felt like, you know, the beauty standard or kind of what the traditional incumbents have reflected kind of care. Uh, reflects who they are. So I think that that's kind of another piece of of the puzzle and definitely is kind of the Selva way of thinking about these brands is how is this making a consumer's life better? And and that's kind of woven throughout both the brands that we've invested in today, as well as the ones that we continue to look at. And then the other piece of it is we do thematic mapping. So we kind of identify the trends in the space um, that we're really most excited about and try to talk to any and all companies that are that are building products in that category. So what are some on the thematic mapping side? What are maybe some of the uh, different themes within beauty and personal care that that you find um, particularly interesting and why? Yeah, so I think first uh, is kind of this movement more towards clinical beauty over clean. Um, which is just this idea of kind of the gold standard being product efficacy. And I think that as consumers become more and more inundated with so many new products, they just really, at the end of the day, want something that works. And so showing, you know, whether it's before and afters or clinical results or kind of a deeper level of exploration in terms of why does this product need to exist um, and then being able to articulate that well through marketing to the consumer, I think is one area across all of, um, you know, everything from beauty to personal care. We see this in supplements as well. 
um, but something that we're pretty excited about. And, um, you know, I think our investment in a company called One Skin is part of this theme. They're a longevity skincare company that creates topical products that help um, combat signs of aging. But what really the customer understands and keeps coming back for is this is like, this is a skin health product. So it's not just improving the way your skin looks, but it's improving the performance of your skin, your resilience. You know, your skin is the largest organ in your body and it's making it stronger and and more defensible to, you know, think external factors. So that's one category that we're pretty excited about. I think one skin is in a, is a start and and we're not done exploring that space. Um, and then more recently, I've been going deep on sun care. I think that, you know, for a number of reasons, everyone should be wearing sunscreen every day. Uh, there's, you know, increasing education. There's increasing understanding of UVA and UVB rays and how essential Essentially, sunscreen is the best anti-aging product you can ever put on your body. Um, but also that, you know, the, the education of all skin tones, all skin types need to be wearing sunscreen, need to be protecting their skin um, and finding the brands that are really at the forefront and creating formulations that work for, for different skin types um, is another, another category that we've been excited about and exploring. I really appreciate you sharing. Uh both those different uh, categories, clinical beauty and also sun care. You you mentioned like at the beginning how you take, how you're right now more focused on, for example, clinical beauty over clean beauty. What do you actually mean by that? How do you define clean beauty in your mind? Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I would say it's a term that is interpreted in different ways by almost everyone. And so you've got a different clean standard from all of the big retailers that we look at. Credo has a different clean standard from Sephora, who has a different standard from Ulta. And um, I would say, ultimately, like what clean and kind of the dialogue around it has done is created um, more awareness of the ingredients we're putting on our body. So I think it's generally been a positive thing. But I do think that in some instances, it has almost steered us in this direction of going to the extreme of we need no chemicals in our in our products. Well, everything's a chemical. Water's a chemical. So I think that this narrative, like while it started in a really positive place of, hey, let's be more conscious about the ingredients that we're putting on our skin, has been now like, you know, to answer your question, I don't have a clear answer of what is quote unquote clean. Because there is different clean clean definitions. It's not standardized by anyone. And so that's why I think, you know, instead of moving, like instead of just investing in companies that claim to be clean, because I don't think any business is going to say, hey, my product's toxic and terrible to put on your skin. I just don't know why you would ever come up with a product you don't view as clean. Um, we are focused on how do we understand these ingredients? How do we understand these formulations? And what is the efficacy? What is the driver that's going to make people say, oh my gosh, this is, you know, improving my self-confidence, making me feel better about myself, making it easier for me to take care of myself. That's really kind of the North Star that we're going for. So when I think about this and tell me if I'm wrong, clinical beauty, it's, um, you know, this is how the product can actually help and better your skin. Whereas clean ingredients, like let's focus on the source of the actual ingredients itself, where you're kind of saying, let's not as much focus on like the actual source of where the, of, and kind of nitpick over what is, you know, clean versus not. Let's just focus on how it can actually help your skin. Is that, is that roughly correct? Yeah, I think that's right. And I think it's also understanding that in the world of consumer, there's going to be different products that work for different people. So I think there's, you know, there's some ingredients that are not considered clean that work for some people and others where, you know, fragrance is a great example of this. Clean generally uh, states that the products are fragrance free. And for people who have sensitized skin or different skin conditions, fragrance can really irritate their skin. But if you have kind of, you know, you don't have necessary, you have normal skin, you might want the experience of fragrance on your skin. So I think it's also understanding that there's different consumer preferences. And so these different ways of shopping and ways of thinking about things work for different people. 
No, that's that's really helpful. I, I I also wanted to focus as well about distribution channels. I know there's a lot of lot of talk around, you know, maybe in 2022 it was said that you know DTC is dead or what have you, and um, you know, there's maybe more of an emphasis to go um, omni-channel or go retail maybe earlier for brands um, than previously. How do you think about you know DTC um, retail um, if you see a brand that that kind of comes to you um, with their value prop. Um, What kind of is the right answer? um, Or how do you think about as a brand maybe could grow in 2023 and beyond? Maybe Kiva, we'll start with you. Yeah, I think for a long time, people believed that direct-to-consumer was in and of itself an innovation, would be how consumers would want to shop across a lot of different categories, across a lot of different parts of their lifestyle. And that trend really had picked up steam prior to the pandemic, which forced all of us into our houses and and accelerated our adoption of shopping online and, and buying products directly from the source. I think we probably, as an industry, overestimated how much appetite there was for consumers to buy product this way. And in doing so, we collectively overcapitalized a large chunk of companies that had not actually proven their ability to scale profitably and create really interesting equity value appreciation for the investors along the way. We like this industry of consumer products and consumer wellness, not only because there are really powerful tailwinds that we think are largely immune to cycles. Uh, We also like it because there are tens of thousands of points of distribution across the United States and Canada that allow consumers to pick up a product that they're familiar with without you having to spend money on an Instagram ad or a Facebook ad or AdWords to get them to transact in that moment. And as these businesses scale, it's those points of distribution that can be very profitable where you, you, know, you share a, a, a small portion of a, of a sale with a retailer instead of spending 30 to $75 every time a consumer transacts. That is ultimately the unlock that we see to these consumer brands having, you know, attractive EBITDA margins over time and, you know, attractive P&L that, that an acquirer would want to buy. So as we have evolved in our thinking, we've probably put, greater pressure on a young brand to prove to us how they plan to build that bridge between being a digital first brand that has gotten a lot of early consumers excited and being an omni-channel brand that really fits with a number of different retailers that can scale. And that means potentially seeing interest from retailers. It means having velocity from some early retailers It means explaining why uh, you won't hit a ceiling when you get beyond a certain type of niche retailer that's willing to take risks and hit the big time, which we think of as Walmart, Target, Costco. I don't think it makes sense to assume that a young brand with under $5 million in sales will have thought of all of that. But we pretty much dismiss at this point the brands who have not thought of it at all who simply think that direct-to-consumer will continue and that the next million dollars will be easier than the last million dollars because I've yet to see the next million dollars of direct-to-consumer revenue be easier than the last million dollars. I would just add to that, we have a Selva book club every quarter where we read a business book and discuss how it relates to our business and the companies that we work with and most recently, we read The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horwitz. And there's a quote in there about no silver bullets, only lead ones. And Kiva and I always kind of go back to that. And I think it's just remembering, you know, 
when the iOS 14 update came out and CACs rose for, especially for these emerging brands, it just made the entire landscape hard. And so a lot of people turned to look to retail as kind of the silver bullet. Um, And the reality is all these channels are really hard. It's really hard to scale a business. Um, And so I think it's a, it's an important reminder as brands think about, you know, how do we scale? How do we continue to grow? You know, ultimately at the end of the day, going back to, is this a great product? Is this a great brand? How do we find our customers that need and want this product and want to keep coming back for more? Um, And, and then, you know, to Kiva's point, really having a strong and solid, well thought through plan for how you're going to go into retail and, and work with those uh, partners, not only to be on shelf, but how are you solving something for the retailer? How are you tapping into a trend that they are excited about where you can come in and be on shelf and they're, you know, kind of helping to promote uh, the brand and, and the trend that you're tapping into. So um, yeah, no, no silver bullets, but uh, definitely we've, we've been an omni-channel supporter since uh, before it was cool, I think. <laughs> when you're evaluating a brand, let's say the brand both is D2C um, and then also is in retail, how much is an online dollar worth to you compared to a dollar in retail? I don't think we can adjust with a lot of precision how we value one versus another i've certainly heard the when you sell a beverage business they mark your online revenue to zero that that anecdote has gotten thrown around a little bit i understand why that's true in beverage although i wouldn't consider myself an expert in beverage i would say it's definitely not true in other categories So we don't so much value online dollars as less than retail dollars. We do use a different set of metrics to evaluate them. So for an online business or a business's online channel, I care a lot about what percentage of their customers come back within 12 months what percentage of their customers decide to subscribe and what percentage of their subscribers are still around after 12, 18, 24 months. All of those things inform payback periods on customer acquisition costs. They inform uh, what your return on invested capital is or LTV to CAC. They also at their core just indicate signal as to whether you're actually solving problems for consumers. Because if you've solved the problem for a consumer, they're going to buy it again. On the flip side in retail, what we're typically caring about is, are you turning fast enough relative to your category benchmark and relative to your competition to one, stay on shelf, not get kicked out, two, increase distribution in that door, meaning Let's say you have two flavors on shelf and you want to get three and four on there. And three, uh, attract other retailers to bring you on. Because if you're doing well in one retailer, retailer over here will look at your performance in that first retailer as a signal that you will work well in their retailer. So it's not so much that one is more valuable than the other between those two. But I think both tend to be powerful signals to us on how you stack up against your competition and whether you're ultimately an outlier. No, I think that those are some great points in terms of how to actually think about it from a metric perspective as well. Um, the DDC channel or, or different online channels versus as well uh, retail channels. Walk me through a little bit about both of your due diligence process. I mean, I know that we talked a little bit about it, particularly within um, uh, beauty and personal care, but overall, like, when do you, I know that, cause ultimately I know that you, you want to invest in brands that want to go mainstream or want to be, I'd imagine, you know, on shelf at, at the big box retailers. Right. And, and, um, and 
be big consumer brands. But what kind of goes entails into that on your due diligence process, and maybe that you might have crumbles that that this um, that that this brand is truly um, that this brand has potential uh, t- to get to that level. We often ask ourselves in our process once we have evaluated how a brand fits our framework, which I think we've talked about and written about in the past, the five M's, are you solving problems? Are you, are you the team to back? Does the brand have momentum? Is the market big enough to matter? Does it follow a mega trend? Um, we often then at that point ask ourselves, what are we hanging our hat on? What is the thing that this brand or person or people or product really spikes in? That when all is said and done and we look back years from now, whether it proves to be successful or not, as the shortest explanation of why did we invest in this company? We try to eliminate all of the noise in that. We try to focus on what really matters, but there's often that one piece that we've hung our hat on. And, you know, Madeline and I will smile as, as we think about different investments that we've made over time. We, we can probably explain like, you know, for, for each of our investments, what was that thing that ultimately put us over the limit? And sometimes that's analysis of the consumer and what they're looking for and what we've learned about the consumer from reading reviews and reading industry data. Sometimes it's time spent with the, the founder just being blown away at how many moves ahead they're thinking relative to the competition. Sometimes it's a data point. Often the most exciting data point is, is just when you see a when you see a retention cohort curve that shows that you know consumers of a company are still a subscribe like a certain percentage are still a subscriber after twelve months. I mean sometimes you just see a wow number. You think like, gosh, if fifty percent of people who subscribe to this are still subscribers after twelve months. How could this not be working? How could this not be solving problems for consumer? How could this not be a special product? Uh, Those are the things that at the end of the day, I think separate the exceptional brands from the good ones. And we're often trying in our diligence process to just hunt for that one thing that above all else, we can hang our hat on. I would just add that getting to know the team and spending time building relationships before we even get into you know, our true due diligence process has been something that I think is has been important for us in terms of understanding how um, the entrepreneurs that we're working with work through problems, solve tough questions, um, and think just kind of getting a better sense of the way that their brains work. Um, and I think one of the things that we're looking for too in that is self-awareness. So to Kiva's point, knowing where a company and where an entrepreneur spikes but also them kind of being self-aware and knowing the areas where as they continue to scale the business, they're going to need more help and support. Um, So I think that that's, you know, something that as we're building these relationships and just kind of getting to know folks in the community is always something that we're, we're kind of thinking about. Um, So I just add that, but yeah, in terms of our due diligence process, the two of us come from investment banking and later stage, um, you know, financial firms. And so having to kind of take a step back and realize we can't build giant models and hang our hat on, you know, deep numbers analysis is sometimes hard to do, but it's uh, ultimately a good thing. After you've made the investment, I know we talked, um, Kiva, I think you brought up how in fund one, um, entrepreneurs were were pushing for you all to be more involved, or or you know write maybe obviously larger checks, which now you're able to do with 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 fund two. Which congratulations, that's incredible. Um, but how how also do you think about when it comes to it being involved with entrepreneurs and what um, what they maybe um, might might have a hard time or struggle with, where where both of you can can truly add value? How do you think about that part when it comes to investing? Yeah, I think a lot of our companies have a very clear vision of what to do next and what to do in the long run. And it's that vision of those two things that got us excited to invest in them from the beginning. But that doesn't mean that 
when you pull back the curtain, they have all the answers. Most entrepreneurs that I know would describe their entrepreneurial identity as just a constant firefighting process of learning and solving new problems that they have absolutely no idea where to start and trust their gut to do it and trust their long-term vision, their North Star that is attractive and has worked so far. I think if we can be helpful in those firefights and have them not start from the absolute beginning, anytime a challenge arises, but help them with a learning or an anecdote, another company that solved a similar problem, or a good advisor that they can chat with who's maybe led businesses into this new retail frontier, or solved this type of challenge where CPMs can balloon a little bit during a certain time of year, or manage a product recall, or manage a trademark dispute. Whatever it may be that comes up along the way of building a successful brand story, it's our job to be constantly learning, making connections, building a network of people in our corner that we can put in front of these people and be thought of consistently as the first call when a new problem arises. We told founders for, for many years, we have probably like 1% of the answers, but it's our job to have one degree of separation to 99% of the answers. Basically have a group of people who we can connect them with, who can help solve their problems and have enough context to be able to make those connections and inform. Over time, what that means, Mike, is that we're the ones that they call first, we're the ones that they text first. And between you know, interactions like that, a lot of trust is built. The more trust that a founder has for you, the more they want you as a larger check writer in their round, as a more active role on their board, as a more active role um, in all parts of their business. And, you know, we felt pretty comfortable through that hard work and proof that Selva Ventures brings these tangible things to the table, stepping up and saying, you know, hey, next time we're going to lead because we have the capital to do so. No, that's great. That's really helpful. Um, uh, and that also um, makes a lot of sense how you see it in terms of also like uh, and also how you think about value. Um, I know. How are you thinking about as well, you know, today's market? And there's a lot of a lot of uh, uh, commentary about um, brands having to go profit, um, ha- having to get profitable and maybe prioritizing profitability over growth. I think part of that is due to just the, the fundraising uh, landscape has gotten um, tighter just due to the markets. But what are you advising your own companies when it comes to ha- um, handling, um, um, handling uh, t- today's market outlook? I'd say we're advising our companies to control their own destiny, which is to say, I don't think it makes sense to get profitable and hoard cash at the expense of exploiting a first mover advantage and providing important momentum to your business that's going to attract customers, talent, and capital down the road. But if there's a channel that has upside down unit economics that you're pouring money into only to show growth and in doing so shortening your runway and making you need to go to the market to raise more capital faster than you otherwise would, I would be very, very scared to do so. So many of the conversations that we're having with our team, with our our founding teams is, uh, Invest your capital in strategic places to create proof points. Extend your runway where you can, but continue to execute against the strategy, which is not to remain a sub $10 million brand forever, but to set yourself up as a viable business that will be able to either attract more capital, grow and not need more capital, and down the road, uh, be large and or acquirable. No, I- I appreciate that. That's great. Madeline, do you have anything else, anything else to add there or no? No, I mean, I would just say, you know, we all see how the capital market has tightened up quite a bit over the last year. And to Kiva's point, being in a position where you can have more runway 
but continue to show why this is a compelling company and needs to exist. Um, you know, it's a balance, but I think that we, you know, in, in the value we're trying to add to these businesses are constantly trying to help them think through that problem. How do you ever, cause I know that, um, obviously the majority, the overwhelming majority of successful exits will come from the strategics and obviously strategics are a, a very important part when it comes to like the overall ecosystem. Do you also maybe look at in terms of what, um, what strategics might find attractive to a company, um, within a company or, um, or the growth that a company needs to be, uh, needs to be at in order to be, um, interesting to a strategic? Yes. I mean, you know, I think we rely, our business relies on the companies that we invest in being, uh, accretive and interesting to these strategic buyers. So I think it's definitely top of mind for us and something that we, we think about a lot and we talk to these folks about, um, pretty regularly, you know, in this second fund, we brought on um, as a as a limited partner in the fund Unilever Ventures, who we are working with closely, both in talking through our investments and our pipeline, as well as kind of the trends that they're more broadly excited about as um, you know a, a great potential strategic buyer of the businesses that we are investing in. So I would say, you know, through things like that, through formal partnerships, but also in getting to know. Um, different folks across the board. We're always kind of trying to not only get a sense of what they're interested in, but sharing with them, hey, these are the themes and the trends that we're super excited about and we think are going to, you know, continue to push things forward and um, and be essential to the consumer landscape uh, as, as it evolves over the next couple of years. Got it. Got it. Yeah, no, I and, and I appreciate how you think about it as well, whether it's through partnership, LP relationships, or, um, or just kind of getting a general sense in terms of what the strategic are thinking about um, the overall trends or categories that they're kind of excited about, and then mapping that down as well into what what also makes sense potentially. I know, Kiva, you're bullish on is um, the non-ALK movement. And I, I know that your investors in Shirley, it's been interesting as, you know, an, an, an interviewer, I've had on investors that um, are bullish on non-ALK. And then I've also had investors that aren't maybe bearish overall, but think that it's going to be just maybe a niche category, not not maybe as mainstream as some others uh, believe. They might think that people w- still want to have an escape, um, that maybe that's CBD or something else, but there might still be there. Why do you believe that non-alc beverages will be a big category? I think it comes from the combination of two things. One is, and by the way, these two things I think are such massive staples and trends within our industry that I just don't see them going away. Number one is that our culture is built upon a collection of social interactions that have so much alcohol consumption built into them. The way that people come together, the social lubricant of our Western society is alcohol. If you go to a, uh, a restaurant on a Friday night, a concert, a sporting event, wherever it may be, uh, if you and a friend are looking to get together after work, what do you say? Let's get a drink. You don't say, let's walk around the block or let's sit in chairs and, and look at each other. You say, let's get a drink. That is something that may over time decline some, but I believe it's such a pivotal and massive part of our culture that it is going to stay for decades to come. The second is that people are trying to consume less alcohol. And they're doing that for a number of reasons. One is that they want to sleep better. Two is that as they're upgrading many parts of their wellness regimen, they're finding that the consumption of alcohol is offsetting a lot of their gains. And three, probably most holistically, is they they want to feel better. And they've learned that alcohol has an impact on the way that they feel. 
in a way that's being more popular to talk about. So the common misconception when people rebut the thesis that non-alc alternatives like non-alc beer and non-alc wine, non-alc spirits and cocktails will grow is that people actually want alcohol. And I don't disagree with them. I don't disagree that people want alcohol. If people didn't want alcohol, then thesis number one would be untrue. The truth is that people don't want alcohol all the time. You may want to have a glass of wine on Friday or Saturday with friends. You may want to have three, four, five. But that doesn't mean that when you meet a colleague or a business acquaintance on Tuesday or Wednesday and you have an early flight or an early workout the next day that you want to drink with them. But if getting together with that person counteracts with your ability to have a good night's sleep and a good early workout the next morning, or let's say your kids are waking you up at five in the morning anyway, and you just want to feel a little bit more rested to attack the day, being able to sit across from that person and have a non-alcoholic glass of wine or a non-alcoholic beer and not throw off the dynamic or feel confident at a party where everybody else is drinking alcohol that you don't necessarily want to be pressured into. These are these moments where non-alcohol alternatives solve a really, really important problem for consumers. Our thesis is not that non-alcohol alternatives are going to become 50% or even 10% of the beer, wine, or spirits market. The thesis is simply that even if they contain half a percent, these markets are so big that there is so much room to build categories that continue to solve a really big problem that consumers are facing. It's interesting because, so just thinking about you know, myself. So I stopped drinking really since like 2015 or so. Um, I probably had like, I've, like, I've been to bars since then and have had like a couple drinks, but in terms of like the, Hey, let's like get to get together. I mean, now for the past like few years, I really haven't had much of anything. If my wife tells me that like a glass of wine tastes really good, then I'll just have a sip. But, um, just to kind of taste, um, just to taste it. But like, I can't, I won't order, um, anything at bars. And the, and the reason why is because I can't, I, I actually just can't finish it anymore. Like I just can't um, like finish like a pint of beer or anything like that, even though like I like the taste. It's, it's also kind of ironic too, because back in the day, I like, I like brew beer with my dad back in the day and like, like love doing that and stuff like that. But, um, um, and so anyway, I just like, I just can't really like, I, I may, I, I mean, I also maybe just have like a weak stomach, so I just can't do it. But it, it is also interesting because the idea of like non-alc for me um, never would register. Like it never would like thinking about getting like a non-alc beer or a non-alc wine. Um, I've tried non-alc beer and I, I actually like it. I actually think like it tastes good, but I don't know why. I haven't ever like wanted to like go back for more or um, or actually like or maybe engage in it in the, in a normal level. I mean, I. Um, I really just have like water or like flavored water in some capacity. I've finally started to get interested in like sparkling water. That's how boring I am. I'm always interested to see how consumers will will respond if they if they want that that similar taste profile that maybe you can get in a glass of wine by by, by having not a uh, non alcohol replacement. Um, and I've seen it kind of go, go both ways in that some consumers love it and get it, and then others are like, well, well, why? I don't really understand it. So. Um, I do think that it's quite like an interesting trend, um, and I'm 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 really kind of curious in terms of how it, how it all plays out. I think the two insights into what you said are one: a lot of people assume that this is a solve for non-drinkers, for people who have given up drinking, or people who can't drink. I actually think it's a bigger solve for people who drink some and want to drink a little bit less. So that's insight number one. Insight number two is that the consumer world is incredibly fragmented. If there's like one thing that Madeline and I can can like try to shout from the rooftops here, it's that uh, one person loving or hating a product is so non-indicative of whether a brand will succeed or whether a movement or category will succeed. And it is actually the fragmentation of taste preferences and consumer preferences in general that allow this industry to flourish. It's what allows indie brands to go solve problems that big 
large, established, well-resourced CPG conglomerates can't solve. And so that fragmentation, I think, is the magic of this industry. It's something that I think we should just be celebrating more, the differences between us and how these brands can solve our problems and how when we solve our problems, we can share those solutions with friends. That, to me, is the most special part of the industry that we work in. Yeah, that's a really great point. Really great point. And um, on that note, I think that's a great um, a great place to stop right here, just in terms of like celebrating the fragmentation and also like the opportunity within consumer brands. Um, Kiva and Madeline, thank you both so much for your time. Thanks for having us, Mike. It's always a pleasure. Thank you. And there you have it. It was a pleasure having Kiva and Madeline on. Thank you both so much for, for coming on the show. And congratulations again for raising your second fund at $34 million. That's just fantastic news. Gabriel, thank you for joining me today. How are you? Yeah, really great. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. No, it's a really appreciate it. So when someone wants to invest, whether they've started their own fund, their emerging manager, or they and they have LPs, or whether they're or an angel investor, how do they typically get started? What should what should they be thinking about? Yeah, that's a great question. So yeah, our platform makes it easy for people to pool funds together and invest in early stage startups. There's a number of reasons uh, someone would use, you know, SPVs or want to create a venture capital fund. Um, so you know, for angels, I would say you know the most important part is you know diversifying your portfolio. So instead of you know putting 10k check. Ch- checks into, you know, a single company, you can diversify by putting your eggs in various different baskets using an SPV. Um, so that's, it's, it's a predominantly uh, popular use case to kind of diver- diversify your angel investing. Um, as you know, it's highly risky asset class. So um, instead of being concentrated in one single asset, it, uh, it allows you to invest in multiple. So that's a use case there. Cool. So how how does Vobin kind of make it easy and what what do you need to think about on like the admin side in order to actually set up whether you're angel investing, whether they're setting up like an SVV or a fund? Yeah. So, you know, fundraising is a pretty difficult task, uh, whether you're a founder, angel or, you know, a venture capitalist. Um, So with our product, you know, we have all the ancillary services incorporated into the platform using a digital platform. Um, So, you know, we handle the legal documents to create a separate legal entity. We have a banking uh, partner that is incorporated into the dashboard. We'll onboard the investors. You'll have real-time information of how your fundraising process is going. Um, And then we'll handle any administrative aspects such as reporting, uh, any taxes, and ultimately uh, the distribution at an exit scenario. So, you know, if a company goes IPO, if a company gets acquired, you know, how does that capital flow back to the investors? Um, so, you know, we handle all of that. So our clients can focus on, you know, finding great opportunities, networking, building relationships and building those investor relationships, which takes a lot of time and effort, uh, as anyone who's been fundraising will know. Again, if you're enjoying the show, I highly recommend subscribing to my newsletter at theconsumervc.com where you'll receive all new episodes straight to your inbox and a weekly recap of all the consumer deals that are happening. Thanks again for listening.